This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. As always, I'm looking forward to another fascinating discussion on the 3D Pod. Who do we have on the show today? Well, we've got Scott Volk, and Scott is, well, not so much a dino, but he's more like a fern. Uh, he's been around for a very, very, very long time in 3D printing, uh, starting up uh, in about, well, the end of the 90s, really, uh, on RTV molding and, and uh, SLA, or stereolithography, or VAT polymerization. And uh, he started doing that in a company called uh, Scion or something like that, which I, I don't even, I'm not even familiar with. Then he went on uh, to do some prototypes, work a lot more in sintering as it came out, material extrusion, that kind of thing. Then he worked for a company called, a storage firm called Laser Modeling Inc. Again, in contract manufacturing for RTV molding, SLA machines. And then he started working for another company that's uh, really well-known, GPI Prototype, for uh, you know more DMLS or, or metal sintering now. And he was now he became kind of more of a machine operator. So he's been doing things like you know sales, actually running machines, and later on he went uh, to become the director of additive manufacturing and additive technologies at Ankodema, a uh, big service uh, in upstate New York somewhere. And then he went to work uh, uh, as a VP at Kazalowski Additive Manufacturing at CAM. Uh, and subsequently, he's the uh, the kind of like the, the independent owner of uh, Advanced Additive Innovations, which is his own kind of uh, vehicle for, for giving out strategic advice. So there are very few people as experienced and have been running around uh, as much as Scott has. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Scott. Great. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And, and what I also like is that you you didn't just stick to one problematic machine. You decided yeah. to, once they got that whole the SLA stuff kind of working, you were like, oh, yeah, let's try sintering and let's try metal and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. You know, actually, it's kind of – it's funny you start there. Um, first of all, the, the first company is called Psycon. Okay. Um, yeah. They actually are still out there, but, um, you know, um, that was an interesting place to start. You know, the world – was um trying to figure out how to you know visualize things right and that's the i go back to that first story all the time especially now with my new company 3d printing really the 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 start of it came out because most people struggle with how to visualize um, design and features on a drawing and so you, you know, once you were able to take that drawing, create a model, and then actually 3D print it, and within days have something that you could have at your board meeting to pass around and show, um, it changed a lot of companies, right? Like all of a sudden, it just became so much easier to visualize and understand and move forward. Um, you know, second to that then started to be where it changed the the injection molding world because, you know, the prototyping for that was such a challenge where traditionally all you could do was injection mold something. And if you wanted to make a design change, you actually had to change the tool, um, which is extremely expensive uh, to be able to do any kind of iteration. So if you think back in, you know, in the nineties, when you would look at an injection molded part at the store, you would find all kinds of mistakes in design and, and you would think, why didn't they just fix this? 
Uh, it was yeah. super expensive. They just would leave it because we're it's not a pain in the butt. <laughs> right. So 3D printing kind of changed that whole world, right? And um, it, it was just super exciting to be part of that. But you're right. You know, like, you know, <laughs> the torture that existed within 3D printing in those days, trying to figure out how to get, you know, SLA to work and, and how to get parts. And then, you know, as everything goes bigger and bigger and bigger starts to happen. And, you know, we didn't have, you know, eight foot machines back then. So having to glue parts together and how to figure out how to do that so they won't break. And, and of course, people are always pushing the envelope and want to use them for airplane wings and, you know, all kinds of things like that, that started to come about. And, you know, it really drove the industry, but it was exciting to be part of SLA. And then, you know, and then FDM came along and, we started looking at that and thermal jet and wax figures and, you know, all these different things that started happening. And it was, it was really exciting, but to me, you know, what really started the, the major path was when people started talking about metal, right. And there were a lot of previous attempts at, you know, creating metal parts. Um, a lot of it was creative fixture or a feature and fill it with metal try to densify metal, center metal, things like that. But, you know, really for me, the big change was when I saw laser powder bed fusion for the first time. Um, and that was, you know, the only company really in the country that was using that technology was Morris Technologies. Um, and linear mold had had some. And um, at that time, when I saw laser powder bed fusion, I, I just realized at that moment, like, this is the future. I'm, I'm done. Like, this is what I'm going to focus on. So, you know, I, I kind of turned my back on polymers at that point and really just dove in headfirst and focused on metal 3D printing and really started to try to become an expert and fully understand the, the industry and the market around laser powder bed fusion. And so, you know, I've spent roughly the last 20 years um, chasing that and following it. And, you know, and you guys know, you know, it's, it's, it's become quite the market now, you know, with, with deposition and, and e-beam and, you know, all the different types of laser powder bed, but it's a, it's a really diverse market, but it's exciting to see that, you know, now we're launching satellites into space using our technology. So um, it's been a great journey and it's exciting to be at the front of it and to watch it, you know, build and, and develop over time and, and now to see it come to fruition and, and being used the way it is today. So what was it, you, what were some of the first metal or powder bed fusion systems you saw when it's called DMLS and all that? What was it? Was it like AOS, like, uh, what is it, uh, 190, 170, those things or what? Uh, the 250 was the, you know, one of the commercial machines that people were actually had access to. Um, but, you know, actually, I it's kind of funny. My, my journey started actually before EOS. I didn't even know EOS existed when I was looking at metal machines. Um, you know, I started talking with... Uh, medical modeling actually back then and um, forecast 3d where they had were dabbling in in metal um and in this when, those when days, was this around oh six oh seven yeah it was mostly arcam at that point um and you know that's what medical modeling had back then was a, an arcam machine and they were struggling really hard to to keep it working and so at that time I was doing outsourcing and that's when you were talking about uh, GPI. Um, you know, I was actually, uh, James Hockey and myself founded GPI prototype. Um, you know, Scott Galloway was the financing, but 
we were kind of the brainchild of that company and, and built it from the ground up. And it actually started from outsourcing. So we really just came in and started outsourcing metal parts. Um, and as we built a client base, we realized, hey, we need to have a machine and what are we going to do for that? Um, and we started with uh, 3D Systems Realizer. Uh, and those first machines were actually over in Europe. There weren't any here in the in America yet. And we ran into, or they did, they ran into patent problems. Back then it was the uh, um, variable focus. Uh, EOS had a patent on that. So we couldn't get any sample parts, couldn't get a part, a machine. And I started looking around and I found EOS. And uh, it turned out they were only, you know, a couple hour drive away from us. You know, we're in Chicago and they were over by Detroit. And so that was easy. We went over and we got introduced to linear mold. And, you know, John was really gracious in, in bringing us in and teaching us a lot about, you know, how it works and the markets that are utilizing it. Um, that was a great relationship for, for many years. Um, and then, you know, we just really uh, learned how it works, bought a machine uh, and started from there. And that was actually one of the first 270s that we bought. That was before the, you know, Argon add-on and you know, really the only metal being used was uh, DM20, which which today really nobody uses, but it was more of kind of a brass, bronze, stainless kind of blend um, of a material. Super hard to work with. But at those days, it was one of the few things that they could get to center, um, or today we call it welding, of course, because it's not centering. But, um, you know, it was one of the few metals that could actually create a part. Um, so that's where it started. And then, and what were the applications in the beginning? Because it must have been okay. First off, it must have been really difficult to make anything, right? <laughs> uh, but what 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 do you then sell, right? What can you actually sell to people that you can actually make? Metal teeth? Yeah, I mean, I you know that's it's, that's a great question because I think we're still dealing with that today, right? Like, how do we get more people involved? And and really, that's the uh, main basis of advanced additive innovations is, you know, how do we grow this industry? How do we build? new markets how do we bring more people into this into using 3d printing not just metal but plastic polymers you know everything involved but um but yeah i mean when it first started wow what a challenge um but i i think in those days i think it was probably easier because to some degree everybody wanted to try it everybody wanted to see what they could do with this new metal printing thing so People were throwing all kinds of things at the wall to see what would stick. So there really wasn't, um, you know, a barrier of entry for trying to find people interested. The problem more so was what what are good applications? What should you be working on? What should you be spending your time trying to develop and, and, and work through? But, you know, I mean, there were some really great stories that came out of those those years. I mean... A quick one, you know, I had a customer call me. This is a great story and it, and it still applies today. But I had a customer call me and he had a, it was a canine implant and uh, it had, you know, like a threaded jack in it for a, for a, a implant post. And um, he sent me the drawing for this and it was, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 separate pieces that had to be micro laser welded. And I mean, it was tiny and there were all these different parts in it and, it and it just extremely complicated and i looked over the drawing and as i'm watching looking at this thing i thought you know i think i could 3d print this in metal as one piece you know no i don't need to weld all this stuff together like just assemble everything and let's just print it so 
So I called the customer and I said, Hey, you know, I'm looking over your drawing and I think, you know, I think we could just print this and it would be functional and you don't need to do this the way you were doing it. And he said, you know, I'm really glad you called me um, because you, you fast tracked um, the ability for me to figure out whether I should work with you or not. And it's clear you have no idea what you're looking at. So, you know, thanks for the call. And I, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, whoa, whoa, hang on. No, seriously, I, I, I really think this is a great application. And I said, and we, we went back and forth a bit. And, you know, he was like, you're crazy. You don't know what you're looking at. And I'm like, no, I, I really do know what I'm looking at. But, but here, I'll, I'll just make you a deal. Here, I, I have so much faith in this. And I, I really want to see this work. I'll print you one tonight. I'll ship it to you tomorrow. When you get it, take a look at it and just tell me what you think. He said, now I know you're crazy. And I'm like, why? He goes, you're telling me you're going to print this tonight. You're going to ship it to me tomorrow. And I'm going to have a part in a couple of days of this design. And I said, yeah. He goes, it's just not going to happen. I said, look, man, when you get the box, let me know what you think. Well, he, he finally did get the box. And when he looked at it, it changed their entire company. It got to the point where he was actually one of my most annoying customers ever because he would not let any engineer in that company for the next year produce anything without running it across my desk. Um, and the problem was we weren't charging consulting and it was, I mean, it became so overwhelming to look at every single design, every single part that he was doing. But, you know, if you think about it in today's terms, that would be amazing, right? Like that's what we all want is to have customers run their ideas by us first so we can help them design those parts and understand what could work or what is possible before they go too far down the track of how they're going to produce those parts. Um, but that was a really exciting one. I mean, eventually they, they ended up buying machines of their own and they, they really did. They changed their entire company and the way they produce canine implants um, to be 3D printed. So that, you know, I, I think that's an amazing story, especially in those times, um, you know, about some of the adoption that was actually happening. So I like that, that, that you're really actually getting to what I saw as well. And I began periods much later than yours, of course, which was like, there were so many really experimental people uh, that were just throwing so much at the wall, as you say, that someone stuck, right? It was like, everybody always imagines that companies are rational. And we've, we've seen so many irrational behavior, like people trying to print stupid things, people trying to do things that don't work, people trying to think, do things that are idiotic. But I think that randomness also really, really did help us. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that going around today too, where, you know, people are starting to judge customers that, you know, like for instance, somebody will want to print a bracket. And yeah, of course, you know, from our perspective of the experts in the industry, we look at that and say, what a terrible part, right? But I think that's one of the struggles we end up having is the experts, we have such a fine-tuned perspective of what's good, what's bad, what should, should, shouldn't be done, that we minimize what it takes to get to where we are today. Um, and so many people, um, and of course we know like most people have to become an expert themselves before they'll actually fully adopt something, right? So um, a bracket is where they start. And, so and not everybody is in the same well, place. 
But why do you say a bracket's like, you know, a horrible <laughs> place? I'm curious, is it because it's just easier to metal stamp it at the end of the day or to do a sintering process? And, well, no, or is it just because it's a boring part? But no, <laughs> well, boring is an interesting word as well. You know, boring means it's defined, it's understood, it's not right. risk, right? Like, so, yeah, I think exactly right. It's It needs to be something boring so that they fully understand it. So when they 3D print it, they can understand the variables, right? If you grab something super complex right out of the gate, it, you're not really going to understand whether this would have been okay in traditional or right. not, right? So a bracket gives them a, a, a baseline, right? Like they know they have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years worth of experience on that bracket. They know exactly how it performs. They know what they went through to produce it. They know where fatigue marks are going to be. They know how it's going to perform. And so when they take that and print it and now compare it, they know exactly what they're looking for. Um, and it's and it's something that they know they can use without you know much risk. That That's where it has to start. But we all know. I mean, we look at it and we say, man, that's crazy. Like, why would you do that? But it's because really the true, I believe, the true um place that you have to start for adoption and acceptance is you have to get these people who we want designing parts for this industry to understand and accept the technology and they're not going to start with a super complex geometry first they're going to start with something that they can get their mind wrapped around and understand it first uh, and that means going backwards a little bit right like that means um taking on that frustration of hand-holding them and walking them through the process, even though you've done it a million times already. And, you know, that's, it, it's a, it's a struggle and not every company is set up and, and able to do that. Um, but that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? Like that's why I, I started the company I did is because I started to realize, you know, the high end end of our market, you know, the rocket engines, the aerospace parts, um, those really high value parts, they're great for, you know, the, the 10 main suppliers that we have in the industry today, you know, doing laser powder bed and machining, but there's a whole nother area that it's going to take for us to grow before, you know, 3d printing as a whole becomes a real manufacturing technology. Um, you know, we have to bring in the consumers. We have to get on automotive on board. You know, those, those types of markets have to embrace this before we'll become a full-fledged manufacturing entity. Um, and that's that's kind of my mission is to figure out a way to build the industry from the other end, right? Like instead of all those high level components, how can I get, you know, people who aren't even looking at 3D printing or markets that should be looking at it that aren't, how can we bring them into 3D printing? And that's kind of the mission today. Yeah, with the implementation, I think I think the, the 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 kind of like the boring part is is the way forward. I think for a lot of people, and it's like find the the, the least critical part or something, or the um, and then but then we always have the problem. It's like it's too expensive. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> but if you, <laughs> if you would have just picked part. something else. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is there is something to the fact that you can make the boring part now. Yeah, and, and but, that it's, yeah. Yeah. but then it also stalls there, right? Yes, um, because then you look at the price and you don't realize that you should be adding cooling channels and doing 16 other things at the same time. Yeah, uh, I think also, 
in 3D printing applications, what you see is that if you look at something like orthopedics, it took 30 years, first off, we've mentioned that before, but there's also so many advantages. And often people just look at one advantage, oh, we're going to save mass or whatever, and then boom, full for stream ahead, you know? So I think that the people need to be a little bit more critical when starting as well. How would you take a client now today, Scott, on, on, on a path to, to you know, getting, getting into metal printing, for example, what would you do? Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm working on right now. And and you said it, right? The the problem is, is for those boring parts, today's pricing, you know, at those standard service providers that are out there, today's pricing prohibits those customers from making those boring parts. Um, and that's that's one of the, the missions, right, is to figure out a way, how can we make that part at a price that incentivizes them to try out 3d printing um and so you know my company one of the things is i have to you know i have to make the sacrifice and not make a killing on every single project um and they're you know so that means charging a reasonable rate to you know to lower that barrier of entry um and you're going to hear me say barriers of entry a lot because that's kind of my campaign right now is lowering the barriers of entry for 3d printing um, and so what that means is working with suppliers, um, finding like-minded owners like myself that think, hey, you know, it's not a race to the bottom, but it's a, it's, it's a, like you said, you know, get all the ships to, to, to rise by figuring out a way to, to, you know, raise that, that bottom. Um, and so people like Juan Mario at Exact Metal, um, you know, and what 6K powder is doing with, you know, recycled powder and, and rejuvenated powder. You know, things like that are, are ways for us to reduce pricing um, for these entry level products, right? Like I'm not saying that the high end, that high value needs to change. I mean, once customers have utilized and realized the value, those parts are designed perfectly for that value and they incorporate that value. So the pricing that's going on at that high end is fine. It's perfect. But when we want new people to come into the industry, those pricing models don't work. Um, and that's what I'm trying to figure out is, is pull together a way to, to bring down those barriers. And some of it is just purely sacrifice of, you know, you can't make 70% margin, you know, you need, you, you got to make 15% margin. And, and most people would say, well, that's, that's insane. You're just going to starve forever. Eh, yeah. But I have a I have a plan and a and a thought that you know I've I've watched three D printing grow almost from the start and I've seen what it's been able to do and um, and a lot of that was done back then and here we are today so if somebody were to step back and and reduce those margins I I have faith in that we can rebuild a whole new area in the market f by doing that and that's what I'm doing. Well, I think we should go further in a bit, but, but I'm really curious because you have worked on the service side. You know it is a terrible business. So it's <laughs> nice to say that you should sac sacrifice margins. Uh, but I've told so many people, like I've done a, a couple of projects where people came to me, like they're, they seemed intent, like we're going to be a 3D printing service. That's what we're going to do. And I'm like, and I would just spend all their money telling them not to do this. <laughs> like, don't, don't. It's terrible. <laughs> just because you believe in 3D printing doesn't mean you need to like like do this. Please don't do this, right? Because I, you know, I worked at, at Shapeways and Materialize and stuff like this, and I know the economics of this stuff, and it's it's daunting, especially in metal. Like, so you know that like, you know, just sacrificing a little margin is not going to cut it, right? Yeah, it definitely takes partners in the industry, and that's why I named a few. You know, it's it's going to take many owners 
to step back, you know, software, powder, metal, you know, all the heat treating, you know, it's going to, there's going to need to be a, a redesign of a, a portion of the supply chain to pull off what I'm talking about. Um, Cause you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the other side of what I do is I, you know, do consulting and advice for people. And certainly I, I get, you know, maybe a call at least once per week of somebody wanting to start a new service provider. And they're like, Hey, Scott, I know you know how to do this. Will you help me? Um, and you know, the first question is, is, well, what market do you think you want to serve? And, you know, a lot of people are enamored by the military defense and aerospace area. And they're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want rocket engines, military <laughs> defense. And, and I'm like, well, do you have, you know, 30 to, to $50 million right now that you want to, you know, basically throw in the garbage can and wait 10 years to make any kind of profit. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, because that's pretty close to what it's going to be. Like, if, if you don't have that kind of tolerance right now, I, I wouldn't even get started in that direction. But if you simply change your market and think about, well, okay, let's not talk about military and defense. Let's, you know, let's, let's think about some consumer goods or some energy products or, you know, things, things that are not, you know, fully certified, qualified, specified the way these aerospace and rocket engines are starting to be, you know, you can create and, and stay under a barrier that you don't have to have, you know, a $50 million operation, you know, that, that has a, a, a payroll burn of, you know, 150 to $250,000 a week or month, depending on how you put it together. You know, you can, you can get to a place where you can keep your overhead down and, you know, satisfy a different type of market. So, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of where that's coming from is, you know, looking at lower cost equipment, lower cost powders, different, you know, working out deals with, with, um, software providers, you know, cause you're right there, we already know the model, we know what it takes, but it's about being creative and truly standing behind the mission of, which is what I'm doing is to introduce new people. Um, you know, I've made a, a great living in this industry so far. And, you know, I, I'm in a place where I can step back a little bit and, you know, make the sacrifice to help new people um, realize and enjoy 3D printing. And, and that's what I'm doing. It's interesting because uh, what I always tell people is like, if you want to do like, uh, get to a part where you're profitable doing whatever, right? Mm -hmm. In metal, I always tell them like, okay, three to five million, right? And then, because you're not going to, it's not going to cut it with one machine. You're going to need two. You're going to need like, you know, all sorts of stuff. And then, and I, yeah, I like the idea that if you do want to do like kind of your own little mini Centavia, right? Yeah, you are talking about something that's 30 to 50 million. And then stuff in between, like the energy thing, I think a lot of people are really excited about that now. But there, that's also kind of like, you know, you needed to do a lot of volume and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I, th I, think, it's, it, I think people don't realize just how, how, how capital intensive this whole thing is. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of it is all the certifications and requirements around it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think the world has gone through enough supply chain, you know, management and development that we understand when, you know, if you step away from 3D printing and talk about machining or injection molding, I mean, people know what it takes to bring on a piece of equipment, hire an employee, build a building around it, all the infrastructure, the support, you know, all the ancillary equipment that's involved, you know, of, of course that exists in 3D printing and, and people know what that takes. But the the difference I that's, that's out there today for 3D printing 
is that the other markets, injection molding, casting, um, CNC machining, you know, those are so well matured markets that you're, you're simply just building another entity and then the customers just start kind of flowing through the door. In 3D printing, we're not at a place where there's enough customer base that you can just build a service provider and then a funnel just starts and, and everything just starts flowing through and all your numbers make sense. There's, there's just not enough demand yet. And so those large companies will start to starve because there's just not enough applications yet. There's not enough production to, to satisfy the, the burn rates that are involved. I think that's a really good point. I think, and and that's what my approach is. Like, I think it's different. You're you're talking about like literally like value chain innovation, right? You want to change the entire value chain and get everyone to work together to to like a more higher volume, better. Is that kind of what you want to do, or? Yeah, to some degree, but I, I think really the biggest key is, um, and I know you know, <laughs> everybody in the three D printing world is going to cringe when I say this a bit, but it's because we've all been saying it for the last fifteen years is we have to educate the customers. Oh, and I thought I, you were going to say uh, <laughs> like complexity is free. <laughs> yeah, well, or we could just go back to the 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 standard is uh, it depends. Um, but no, I mean, but it really it is educating the customers, and I think a lot of people are frustrated with that statement today because haven't we spent enough time educating customers? And the answer is no, we haven't. No, yeah, um, exactly. you, know, you know it's. The reason is, is because our industry is so complicated, right? Like I think we, we, as the experts in the industry, we look at it from a basic point of view of, we understand it. We know it. We, we know all the nuances. We know how to avoid the hurdles, you know, but people coming into this industry don't. And, and there's so many people out there, you know, I, um, you know, I, I like to think about, you know, the Waller's report um, and what they did with it over the last two years, um, you know, originally, you know, there was a lot of people who didn't like the Waller's report because the data that was in there was so questionable as far as a global market. But over the last couple of years, I've seen that they really have fine tuned it and it's starting to be a lot more uh, realistic, at least from a 3D printing market perspective. Um, and when they came out and said how, if you look at it and understand like how small the 3D printing market is in comparison to the worldwide manufacturing market. We're not even a complete percent of the worldwide manufacturing market. That statement says a ton. What it really means is the acceptance and adoption level of 3D printing is that small, right? So there is a ton of low hanging fruit that is in, that is out in the world. And what that low hanging fruit requires to, to achieve is education. We have to educate and and bring more people into the understanding of what this technology can do. What I think the mistake we've made is we think we've done enough that people are now going to start internally figuring out how to use 3D printing, develop applications, and then come to us and say, okay, I'm ready. And I, I just don't think we're there yet. I, I think we need to go out, evangelize, figure out ways to get to the machine shops, to get to the injection molding companies um, and work with them to educate and help them understand the potential of this technology 
so that the market will grow. Isn't this somewhat limited also from a software and just a pure like generational standpoint? Like we just don't have enough engineers and that are familiar with it and the software is still difficult and cumbersome. I mean, it's significantly improved in the last 40 years um, from the original CAD, stuff like that. But it's still a lot of time and effort to learn how to use this stuff and to get good enough to then make something that I think is like a production worthy item. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, um, yeah. I don't know if that's like the bigger hurdle on some level. I mean, yeah, we, we always talk about education, but it's also like a generational educational thing, right? To get people to think differently as to how they can manufacture. Definitely. Um, you know, one of the key things that I've been thinking about and talking about lately is, you know, for the last, maybe, let's say, you know, five to 10 years, the 3D printing industry, I mean, look at America Makes as an example of this. But, you know, what we have done is we, we've said we need to start from the top and work our, work our way down. What I mean by that is we need the CEOs of companies. We need the presidents and CEOs to drive the innovation idea down. Um, mm. But what I started to, to come to the conclusion of is that certainly there are companies that are structured where that'll work. But most times I think that doesn't work. Um, I feel like the culture on the shop floor is, is almost more important. Um, if the shop floor doesn't embrace a technology, they will find every excuse in the book to not use it. And so we're talking about engineers at this point. And, you know, if engineers have a, a pathway to produce a part that they can trust and understand, they're going to go that way, right? Like there are very few engineers today that are willing to make the sacrifices of putting a critical component or even in some cases, a non-critical component, they just don't want to fail. You know, they, they want to send their order on Friday afternoon and, and know that it's going to work and not have to worry about it. And 3D printing just isn't at that point yet. Our, the, the, like you said, the generations aren't there. The, the total education acceptance level just isn't there yet. So they're going to go to their go-to, which is an injection molded part, which is a you know, a, a casting, a, you know, or a um, CNC part, right? Like, because they know what they're going to get when they place that order. A 3D printing part many times is, well, what material do you need it in? I mean, think back, like, I'm sure you guys have all accepted, you know, or looked at RFQs, you know, and I'm still getting them today is, hey, can you print me this part? And my first question back to the customer is, well, what material are you thinking? And then the answer is, well, what do you mean? What, what materials do you have? I mean, that's how, basic, you know, that's how basic this goes. So yeah. when the world is still at that level and they don't even know, you know, and then you start to talk about, well, what technology, you know, I mean, here in my shop, I've got four different technologies I can use. So we have all those different types of materials that could, could be involved in. And we expect the customers to have already done their homework and understand that to the point of, yeah, just make me a part. And we're just not there. But if you look at CNC, it is like that, right? Like you just send a drawing. You don't care what machine they're going to make it on. I know I want it in 316 steel. So just, you know, just cut the part and send it to me and make sure there's a CFC and, a, and an inspection report and I'm good, right? Like there's no questions. There's no exploring. There's no back and forth of how are we going to do this? It's just, here's the drawing, make my part. And, yeah. you know, if 3D printing just isn't there yet. This educate the customer thing is like, to me it's not going to cut it because you know what we need to also be a little bit 
kind of more clear here, additive is just crap, right? I mean, a lot of what we do, I, I've just been looking back at like all these problems that are piling up on my end just in regular work stuff. And they're just like, they're stupid stuff that shouldn't be happening. Like, so, so, so I, I'm saying exactly the same as Scott's saying, but it's like kind of like, you know, we are not at the level where 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 it, this is a really technology that, that really works in an industrial level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, like I look at this thing differently and I say, you know what, we could try to work with all the customers. But, you know, if I look at the implementation that works, either it's the magical part, right? We can't make it any other way. We need to print it. That works. Or the top-down thing, I agree with you completely, works sometimes, but a lot of time gets stuck in middle management. Mm-hmm. The, the, the bottom-up approach, we've seen that work like with jigs and fixtures where the guys on the floor say, hey, we need this, and then it ends up being a, a standard uh, if they're allowed that freedom. And then there's another approach I think works, which is called the ski tractor approach, where we're getting like, if we do a, a kind of well-delineated project where we're doing like an extra thing, it's not a critical thing, we're going to make, we make tractors, we're going to make five ski tractors as a side gig project for everyone. And then, uh, you know, the company gets comfortable with it. I think these things work in my experience, but also to a certain part. But, you know, to what extent are we going to force feed every single company? to do this and there are not enough of us to, to, to teach these people how to do this um, and it would take too long it takes a company like two to three years or something to do this and then they have to invest like five to ten million or something like that depending on what they do and, 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 and metal and stuff like that there's there's not a lot of people you said it before like yeah we already have the rocket engines but I think you know how many other non-rocket engine things are there mm-hmm. to me like the one approach I really I, I'm betting on now and I'm looking at more and more I say you know what Let's just have a push button approach where we're just saying, buy this thing here right now. All right, just start the service. Just start the service and, and ink out all the problems with the partners that work, right? So just line up a forecast, line up a design service, line up a software tool behind that and just have that uh, that that just kind of work. And then we conquer the market for uh, for whatever project. Then we, we make invisible liners instead of spending all our time trying to convince three invisible liner companies to adopt this technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that case though, the, the the issue is you're you're saying go out and make it without a customer, and there there's some people doing that, but I I think you know, and and I agree with you completely in everything you just said. You know, one one way to look at this is to to look at three D printing the industry as a company. If we think if we think of the three D printing industry as a company. Then you could step back and I mean, and I know everybody here has heard this, but in a company when you're struggling, what does the owner say? More sales, right? More sales. Sales solves all problems, right? That's that's always the go-to. And the reason they say that is another catchphrase is necessity is the mother of invention, right? If you think about that phrase, what you just said is absolutely true in that the industry does need to become better. There, there, there are new software tools that need to be developed. The ones that exist need to be better. 3D printers need to be better. You know, I mean, yeah, definitely one, one thing that you could look at is, you know, why is it that CNC gets done and nobody cares what machine that gets done on? Um, but in 3D printing, you know, the printer is specified. What, why is that? Well, there, there's many reasons, but one is, one major reason is, is because the machines aren't created the same way with the same confidence and reliability that CNC machines have, right? Like you, I mean, I don't know how many printers you've bought, but you know, it doesn't matter. Desktop printer of $200 up to, you know, a 3d printer that's $3 million. 
you know, they're all kind of the same in that you get them out of the box and guess what? They don't work, right? You, you got to work through it. You got to force it to do a good job. You have to, you know, work with the company. The parts don't come, you know, there's all kinds of struggles, but uh, when you get a CNC machine, you don't go through that, right? You get a CNC machine, it gets installed. Yeah. There might be a couple of little things. The spindle wasn't straight or something needs to be corrected, but then you're off and running. And there is no, you know, for the next year, you're going back and forth with the company trying to get this machine to do what it's supposed to do. Um, and so you're right. From that perspective, you're absolutely right. We have to improve. But I going back to, you know, the, the sales solves all problems thing is we have a strong enough industry that will grow and learn and get better if the demand was there to drive them and push them to solve those problems. And that's where you know, the statement of sales solves all problems comes from is drive it, create the problem, create the demand, and the industry will step up and get better and solve those problems. If you just pointed out a rather like on a, like if the fact that it's not easy to use, it's not out of the box solution kind of thing. If it goes into the wrong markets too soon, then it, it actually hurts uh, the potential future sales, right? Like I know there are a number of retail outlets that are trying to put 3D printers in physical spaces. I've spoken to some of them and asked my opinion, should we do this? And I always say, you know, if you're like a, a craft store, for example, the, the answer is no, because they're not ready yet for that level of consumer. Right. Um, so it, there's still quite a lot that has to be done in the right markets, I think. Like you can't just sell, sell anywhere without having different problems arise, I should say. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you definitely have to be careful and yeah. not just, you know. I, I know we're generally talking about industry itself, like, you know, manufacturing and things like that, not like a consumer level. But the point is more that you could put it in the wrong place and then it it can kill it on some level for that industry, for that sub-industry. Yep. One cultural thing that I think we're really up against, and it's, I'm you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I, I don't know exactly how the human brain works in these ways. But one thing that I have recognized is that just about everybody has to become an expert before they'll use something. Um, and I mean, it can be as simple as, you know, household appliances or, you know, in our case, 3D printers um, that are extremely complicated. So, you know, you're seeing a lot of people buying printers and bringing them in house. Um, and that's because they want to become an expert before they want to before they go out and use it. Um, and for some of those companies, it's really fortunate for the industry, but for a lot of companies, I think it's unfortunate for us because, you know, they're bringing those machines in to become experts and they're starting all over trying to, you know, do the journey and gain the experience. And, you know, a lot of times they're solving problems that have already been solved, but they don't know where to look to, to find those previous learnings. Or in worst case, they're not even looking. They don't care. They they're just learning it on their own. Um, and in some cases, that sets us back, you know, so many years. Um, and so, as you know, part of what I've been saying is trying to figure out a way to 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 get that too, right? Like, and I'm I'm encouraged by what America Makes is doing in EWI, AMC, and ASTM, and and the standards and the and the collaboration work that they're doing, you know, with like Auburn and NASA. You know, those are all things that we're getting collective learning to happen. Um, you know, in the beginning times of our industry, it was a very highly IP 
centered business and it and it still is today but at least there's a lot of things that are starting to become more public knowledge and i think as that happens you know the the educational curve starts to to get better for us all uh, one way i've started to look at it more is kind of like on the internet i don't know how to make a server i have no idea how like i work every day in wordpress i have no idea about like HTML a little bit maybe, but whatever the underlying languages are that make WordPress work or how that our server architecture work, I don't know. There's a guy at 3D Printer Call we work with who understands all that kind of stuff. A team of people, mm-hmm. they know, but they also don't know how maybe the server works. You know what? There's all these abstraction levels in 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 the technology stack for for the internet that I can use every day a tool like WordPress without understanding any of these underlying layers of technology. Mm-hmm. And so I like the. The, that you're working on the heavy lifting of making some people an expert, like a TWI or a Lockheed. I understand they have to be experts, but I think there's tons of other businesses that don't have to necessarily be experts and don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we should also be catering to them. I see very little kind of actual companies that are actually catering to them. Like the, the other thing with services that really bothers me is the services that it's very difficult to go to services with an idea. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you touched on it before as well. You had a customer that came to you essentially with a really complicated part that was wonderful. You did it, you industrialized, and then they end up leaving you afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is that, you know, shouldn't these 3D printing services themselves, these service bureaus, be much more about engineering and helping people make parts and helping people kind of develop and, and increase their own capacity in order to, to really capture that, that market and to make it be a, a force multiplier for all of us? Yeah. So see, that's what you made a really good point in that, you know, the WordPress idea. The reason why that works is because it works, right? When you go to a a solution and you're using a software tool, it's not complicated. You you just put in what you want to do. It works. You don't run into a problem and you're like, well, this doesn't work. And then you start running down a rabbit hole of, well, how do I make this work better? This needs to work better. This needs to do something different that it's not doing for me. It just works. It does what you ask it to do. In 3D printing, I don't think most people aren't there yet. And the other point you made that that makes that, I think, is the reason for that is my example, right? Like, yeah, you're right. I, I changed their business for them and eventually they went away and bought their own equipment. Well, that's part of the reason why the industry today for, for a newcomer doesn't work is because there's so many people in the industry that don't want it to be simple for those people because they're trying to protect themselves from what happened to me with that customer, right? Mm. If it was super complicated and hard to do, then that customer couldn't buy a machine and go away as a customer. They would stay as a customer. And that's where, you know, I mean, Glenn Fletcher years ago at IMTS made a really good statement. What he said was, you know, we were standing there looking at the show and, and we turn and and if you know, IMTS, you know, for 3d printing, you know, we're still pretty small. I mean, this year it was a, a, a bit, or last year it was a bit bigger. Um, it was encouraging to see that, but many years before that, we were literally a, a little show between the pillars over in a corner of one of the halls. Right. And when we were standing in those, in between those pillars, uh, you know, Glenn Fletcher turned around, looked back at the rest of the building and all the giant booths that are there for CNC and injection molding and grinding equipment. And he said, Scott, you know, the problem today in our industry is that we're looking at each other as competitors and we really shouldn't be doing that. What, 
our competitors are that. And he was pointing at the giant show that was around us, right? Like that is where the competition is for us today. We need to work together to create a reliable industry. As you said, you know, we have so much work to do to become reliant, reliable for our customer base that we expect to work with us. But I think a lot of it has been lost in that we're, we're so worried about competing with each other that we've lost sight that we don't have enough to fight over yet, right? Like there's, we need to become a much better supply chain before we, we can be worrying about who, who we're competing with. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think yeah. everybody kind of, you know, we are nobody. I mean, it took us, let's say, we're like a $15 billion industry, print about, like you said, 1% of all the parts. We grow at 30% a year, give or take, more like 22, but it's okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that would mean that if we keep growing, and if it means that every time we reach, let's say, 15 billion, it takes, we get 1%, then still, you know, we're not going to be around for that, right? <laughs> so even that, so so even that, that, you know, if you take your 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 IMTS as your kind of like you know real life graph, you know, by the time that we hopefully are sitting around doing nothing, um, you know, we're 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 still nowhere close to conquering that whole IMTS floor. And to me, I think I'm really encouraged. I'm I'm, I'm frustrated by the you can feel it. Maybe I'm sorry, uh, a stressful week. Uh, but we're I'm frustrated <laughs> by the, the lack of progress in, in this educational thing. You know, I'm not a vocational school. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life being like a vocational school. Um, but I'm I'm encouraged by stuff like, for example, Invisalign. All right, nobody even knew these guys what these guys were doing in the beginning. Now it's like it's perhaps like a half a million parts a day, right? It's it's one of the biggest things. It's really a small part of dental. Uh, it's this invisible invisible liner thing. Mm-hmm. It's this huge application these guys unlocked, and and that started a multi billion dollar industry that's far larger than our own industry in an industry that's far time much more larger than than that industry so i think that we could make a big difference without having to just like take everybody by their hands and 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 and, and tell them about recoder bump until you know we're all uh, really old you know <laughs> the good thing for us all is that there's a lot of people involved right so i'm i'm not at all suggesting that everybody should stop trying to make money and and give everything away for free and and go on the mission that i'm on you know, certainly everybody needs to do what they're doing. And we have so many people involved in our industry that we can afford to have some people do what I'm doing and, and the other side of the industry continue to do what they're doing. And it'll all come together at, at a, at a point. I think it's just a matter of, you know, how quickly do we want to get there? Um, and I feel that what I'm doing now, um, and, and don't get me wrong when I say sacrifice, I mean, yeah, that's financially. Um, but, as far as a happiness and an enjoyment level, oh man, I'm loving it. Right. Like I, I get so excited. I mean, at the end of the day, when I guide a new person who barely understood 3d printing and at the end of the day, you see the light come on and they fully understand like the, the value that they, that I just imparted to them over the day of, of interaction that we had, I go to bed so excited and so happy knowing that there's another person out there now who is, who's got the bug, right? Like there's another person who's going to go, you know, talk to his boss or talk to somebody else or, you know, when they're at their event, whatever it is. And 
you know, for their hobby group and they're, they're going to spread the word. That's the enjoyment I'm getting. That's, that's the fun part of this. And, and the money's not horrible. I mean, it's, it's not the, it's not the rocket engine money. Right. But, but it's, you know, when you're, when you're doing what I'm doing, I mean, I don't have a lot of mouths to feed. Right. So I can keep my overhead down and, and, you know, the enjoyment is, is a lot of it for me. You know, it's, you know, sure. I got to pay my bills and, and I'm, I'm close on that stuff, but, you know, but the, there's enough work because the, the fruit is so low, right? There's so many of these people that are just, yeah, I want to 3d print something. Um, and, and, and working with them, but the thing is they're all working on some hobby thing, but these are engineers of big companies. These are purchasers of big companies. These are, you know, these are, some of them are CEOs of, of companies that have other things going on, but they have these little side projects. And what I'm starting to see already is, you know, companies that had no interest in 3D printing, but because I'm working with a few of the people on the shop floor and a couple engineers within these companies, and they, through me and their little side project, they now have a confidence in 3D printing. Now they are going to their bosses and they're saying, hey, you know, we, I don't think we've taken a really good look at 3D printing yet. And now I'm starting to be called in as a consultant to some of these companies to, you know, their boss says, well, get this guy in here. I want to talk to him. And, and it's spreading the word. It, it, it is building. And look, I know I'm just one guy out of billions of people, but I think if, if people start watching what I'm doing and, and we step back and think about what we did in this industry, you know, 25 years ago as, as we need to go out and educate, if I think a lot of us thought we were done doing that. We're, we're not done. We've only just begun. And I think uh, there's a lot of us that need to step up and get back out there and, and do that evangelizing work that we quit doing. Um, we need to get back to it. Okay, Scott. Hallelujah to that. That's a really wonderful sentiment. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, then that's um, that's all toast to in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, that's that's a short summary of my career and additive so far, anyway. Uh, so, and Max, uh, Max, thank you for being here uh, as well today. As always, Joyce, thank you. Fascinating time. And uh, thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.